Good morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome back to The Voice of the Valley. I'm Jerry Pinch, and I have Rick Whitmer with me in the room. Rick, it's good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to go there, but you did. <laughs> it's good to see you too, man. <laughs> yeah. Should we start over? <laughs> no, no, we're here. Oh, we're here. We're here. We're here. We're rolling. We're going. Don't want to waste the tape. <laughs> Well, Rick, you're in here to talk about uh, government, elections, all that jazz. You were. You I were... love the doctrine of elections. <laughs> you do. You yeah. really do. You, uh, you were with the student ministries uh, last week uh, to, touch, to, touch, to teach on government. I, I totally touched on it. You totally touched on it. And you killed it. If I can Is that a that. good thing? I think so. Cool. I think so. Thanks, man. Um, so you are here to talk about that again today, but also because elections are two weeks away, which is also crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. Two weeks away, we have a new present president, well, probably more like two months away um, because of elections and mail-in ballots and all that stuff that's going on right now. Yeah, who even knows? <laughs> But what do you think about that? I, no, don't do it. Yeah, we're, we're not going there. Uh, but no, elections are two weeks away. Yeah. Uh, and many people are, are fearful of what's about to take place, uh, whether Joe Biden's elected or whether uh, President Trump is elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how are Christians to think through uh, these elections particularly? Okay. Oh, okay. So these are not just elections in well, general, but I mean, you could do elections in general, but yeah. also, I mean, since we have elections coming up, how did that? Yeah. How do we no, that, these ones? that's good. And I think there's going to be overlap, right, between these elections and all elections because this, the truth is about God and his, um, his role in elections doesn't change depending on how tense the election is or what's on the table. Um, but you're right. There, there is something here that is pretty unique. But, you know, as far as how do we think about this election, um, I'd say first we think about it with Thanksgiving. Um, we're called not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, present your request to God. And so Thanksgiving to God that we even get to have elections is, um, I think in order. And it's easy in all the political strife to to lose sight of that. But what a privilege we have, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be able to participate in electing our own government and giving feedback to our governing leaders about what they're doing. And we get to do that. And even though we've been doing it for, you know, over 200 years, um, that's still a pretty big deal. And so with Thanksgiving, for sure, that God's given us this privilege. I'd also say that we we should think about it with worship, um, because we may be talking a lot about um, particular candidates, not just at the presidential level, but at the state level, at the local level. But really, the the centerpiece of elections is God and his sovereignty. Um, Let's think about Daniel um, and his exile in Babylon, and he had a a pretty central role in government. Um, which is pretty impressive for a Jewish exile. Yeah. Uh, and he said, 
in Daniel 2, beginning in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So elections is um, something that we are actually witnessing and participating in how God is sovereignly unfolding his plan. Hmm. And so we get to cast the ballot and see what God's already ordained. So that's pretty cool. We should worship him for that. Yeah. We should also, you know, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, is what Philippians says. So we should be prayerful. Um, and in, in these particular elections, I think that there's a weight, um, a gravity to them that we haven't seen in recent history. Yeah. Um, you think about the fact, we talk a lot about what's been happening in some, some of the bigger cities, and Portland's made national headlines this year a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But the rioting in Portland, it, it didn't just start with the death of George Floyd. Um, it was happening after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um and so we still have a, a pretty significant subset of our population still throwing tantrums, not riots necessarily, but over the the last elections. And that's manifested itself for the past three and a half years in some pretty overt ways. And so right now, you know, we have a very national conversation uh, of these elections are already being contested before they've even taken place. And if it's been contested before it even takes place, what's going to happen after it takes place? Mm-hmm. We as Christians need to be praying about that because there's there's something here that we haven't seen for a long time. Um, and, you know, when you think about one of the two major political parties, the, the Democrat Party, um, just the evolution of that particular party in its policies and platforms um, over the past 10 years— yeah. 20, if you just take it and go back 20 years and look at the difference, the Democrat Party 20 years ago almost looks like your great-grandma's conservatism. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so radically morphed. Um, we need to be praying about that yeah. because these are important things that Scripture speaks to that are going on. And then finally, I think, you know, just to, again, going back to the sermon series that Pastor John's been preaching, we think about it with contentment and peace, because we know that no matter what happens, God's purposes aren't going to change. His gospel doesn't change. His promise to build his church doesn't change. Um, Our experience in the day-to-day might change, depending on what happens and the outflow of that, but God doesn't, and so we can be content and have peace. So I'd say that's, those are some ways that we can be thinking about these elections. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't remember a time, Rick. I mean, I'm, I'm not too terribly old, but I don't remember a time where, where elections have had such a major impact uh, across the board. Um, yeah. I mean, just talking with some of the high school students, even, you know, today, is like, the, they're, this is the stuff that they're talking about and thinking about. And I remember being in high school, and I was like, I don't care who's president or, yeah. you know, what happens next. But this seems to have like a, a huge impact on on every level from top down mm-hmm. and people are people are thinking about it and people are fearful about it so yeah thanks for thanks for that insight on that now there's there's some people though that that look at government and view it as uh, a curse and they want to get rid of government um, but for the Christian government's actually a blessing 
um, or it ought to be a blessing. Yeah, and we have to think about it that way. So, mm-hmm. so what, what does that mean? Why is why is the government a blessing for the Christian? Yeah, I mean, even just saying that, as I'm listening to you say it, it sounds so counter what we think. Mm-hmm. Just as um, Americans, a lot of times we look at all the things that go wrong with government. But you're right, theologically. It's a gift from God. It's a blessing. And, and as with all blessings, we praise him from whom all blessings flow, and that includes government. Um, in talking with the students um, about this, the question was, was framed like this. How do we see government within the plan that God has for society? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we didn't invent this. He did. We know that the government's not everything, but we also know it's not nothing. Right. And when we open the pages of Scripture, starting in Genesis, we actually see the idea of government there, um, along with uh, two other institutions, major institutions that God has given, each having their vital place in society, none of which can take the place of the other, all of which um, interact with each other. And so the first institution that we see is there in Genesis 2, when Adam takes a nap, he wakes up, God brings him. Uh, his rib transformed into a woman. Yes. And he goes, I'm tracking. Hey, I'll give me some McRib. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he, the first human language we have is a poem, a love poem from this husband to his wife. God performs the first marriage ceremony. And, uh, and we see the family established. That's God's first institution. Well, then in Genesis 9, after the flood, um, do you need to take a moment? No, no, you, 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 no you're good. <laughs> okay. Uh, God floods the world because of man's depravity. And then he says to Noah, as part of the Noahic covenant, um, if man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God will require a reckoning of the lifeblood of man. Well, we know that that when somebody commits capital murder, right, it's not just up to anybody who gets to him first to take his life. Mm-hmm. That's actually, that, that part of the covenant implies government, human government, to carry out um, that justice. Yeah. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 13, is he says, listen, government was given by God for your good. He's a servant of God, an avenger of wrongdoing. It's for this reason that he bears the sword yeah. to do that. Yeah. And so we see government um, is there to protect and, and promote good to restrain and punish evil. And the tool that they're given for that is the sword. Mm-hmm. The family is that first institution, and, and Proverbs says that they're given the rod for discipline right. so that children will be nurtured in the, in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, right? right. Well, and then this third institution we see is, is, um, is the church. In the Old Testament, it's the people of God, Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, on this confession of your faith, this gospel that you believe, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this rock, I will build my church. And he gives the tool of the keys of the kingdom to the church. And so we have the family, the government, and the church, each each doing their particular function in society, each with a particular tool. And all of this together brings God glory. And over all of it, we have Jesus Christ reigning as Lord. And each one of those spheres is accountable to him to walk according to his ways. We, we sing all the time, Jesus shall reign. You know, at least I sing that in my house. Um, <laughs> the Lord is king. We sing that at church yeah. and in, 
in Isaiah 9, you know, this passage that we go to at Christmas. This is, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. It's a good vision. So thinking about that, the picture of, you know, these three institutions, the family, the government, and the church, um, is is there a way that we can go get off track if if Christ isn't supreme? Oh, sure, right? Um, when you think about the family, take Christ out of the picture, and what happens if we don't follow biblical commands in how we nurture and raise our children? You know, it, it, when Israel comes back from exile, a mm-hmm. hundred years after coming back from exile, an exile that was supposed to teach them a lesson um, about the importance of following God and his word, um, they start, the family starts breaking apart. And in Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, um, God calls him out. In chapter two, he says, um, be faithful to the wife of your youth, because what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So without Christ at the center of the family, the whole purpose here, godly offspring, Mm -hmm. um, that aspect of it goes away. Mm -hmm. When government doesn't submit itself to the lordship of Jesus, all of a sudden it tries to supplant Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is actually a a pretty decent way of looking at socialism and communism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because whereas Jesus is providential, as he is sovereign, as he's the provider for for people, government goes, hey, we're going to take care of you. We're going to do it by doing, breaking commands, the Ten Commandments. (laughs) And, And then, of course, if the church loses sight of Jesus and his supremacy, well... We had a reformation about it, yeah. you know, as the Pope started to supplant the authority of Christ yeah. and abuse his people. Yeah. So, yeah, Christ has to be central. Yeah. So now there's there's a common phrase that kind of goes around during election cycles that says it's a Christian duty to vote. Um, and what I tend to take away from a statement like that is, is if you don't vote, you're sinning. Um. So what what does that mean? What does it mean that it's your Christian duty to vote? Hmm. Um, well, I, it, it might mean as many different things as people who say it. So, But generally speaking, I think that the idea is right, that we do have a Christian duty, mm-hmm. um, that it's not just if we feel like it. And the reason is because of the form of government with which we've been entrusted. And in God's sovereignty, he's determined that Christians in the United States would live in this form of government. And where does the seat of government rest? It's on we the people, right? And if we as the people are determining how government looks in our time, the kind of people who are going to be enacting laws that we're going to have to follow, and, you know, as the church live within that kind of a land, uh, who of all the people in the land know most what is good, true, and beautiful, objectively speaking, yeah. what would be the people who have the Bible, right. who know God, who right. is the, or the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. And so first I'd say that I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a sin not to vote. Um, I will say I would believe, I think, I believe it would be sinful for me not to vote because I can't in good conscience not vote. Um, okay. And I'd lean toward guessing that it might be sinful for most Christians not to vote, simply because of the principle of stewardship, um, that we have this unique privilege um, as we participate in the kind of government that we have. 
Um, the reason why I would say it's a duty is because we're called to love our neighbor as ourself, right? Like that's, you know, one of the two great commandments. Right. Well, voting, our vote, even though we're one of millions of votes, our vote actually does something. It actualizes reality. We do something on paper, and when enough of us do a particular thing on paper, a particular person goes to an office and does particular things. Senators make laws with the representatives, and we all are obliged to obey them. Yeah. Well... If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, and I have a scripture that tells me what goodness looks like, and that's the very goodness that government is there to protect and promote, boy, I need to do my part to make sure that we have people who know what that looks like going to the Capitol and doing the things that we pay them to do. Um, You know, Paul says in Galatians 6, we are to do good to everyone as we have opportunity, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I'd say that voting can be done in such a way that because of our faith in Jesus, it is a good work that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. Yeah. So we need to do that to the glory of God the way that we do all the things that God gives us opportunity to do. Yeah, we live, I mean, we live in a unique time, obviously. Like, we're not, we're not under the rule of Caesar. Uh, Thanks be to God. <laughs> we're not under uh, the rule of, you know... North Korea. Again, under, thanks be to God. Because that's... China. Crazy. Venezuela. All, all these different places where, where we don't have those rights, rights, and these God-given blessings. Man. Mm-hmm. In order to see how, how God could actually use that to, to form and shape our country. Yeah. Wayne Grudem. Um, a lot of people know him as the theologian who wrote... Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is great, great book. Um, He also wrote another one, smaller, but still pretty hefty, called Politics According to the Bible. And in there he says, every Christian citizen who lives in a democracy has at the very least a minimal obligation to be well-informed and to vote for candidates and policies that are most consistent Mm. with biblical principles. Mm. So I'd say that's probably what's behind this Christian duty to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Rick, you, um, in in the student ministries and in other conversations, you've you've given this analogy of front door politics. I think is what you called it. Yeah. Or the house politics or something. I yeah, front door voting. For, front door voting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, walk us through what that looks like and what that means. What is what is front door voting for you and how does that apply to Christians as they vote? Yeah. Um, okay. So this is, uh, this year in thinking through all the different things that are going on and all the different issues on the table, um, I kind of got weary in hearing that um, from other Christians that, well, we're not going to be single issue voters. We're not going to just look at one issue and let that determine who we vote for or not. There's a lot more on the table than just a one issue, which is totally true. And I was trying to think through it biblically because I knew biblically we don't have freedom to vote for just anyone. And nobody is perfect. So in thinking through how do we really weigh all that's going on 
such that we fall down on the side of doing the most faithful thing that we can on our ballots. Um, This analogy of politics as a house kind of came to my mind. And and I think, I think it's something that God prompted me to think of. I'm not saying it's inspired. I'm just saying, I think it's a useful analogy and it looks like this, you know, you think about a house, Uh, if politics is a house, there's many rooms. Some rooms are bigger than others. All the rooms are important, but some are more important. Mm. And when you think about politics, we've got rooms that involve the you know freedoms of religion and freedoms of speech, which are foundational. We have the room of national defense, law and order. Um, another room, this one's pretty big, economics. Yeah. You know, and this year has shown us how big that room is, as if we didn't know. There's the the education room. Um, issues of poverty and social justice, uh, the environment, healthcare, all of these are rooms. Yeah. Um, foreign policy and immigration, that's an important room. Yeah. How we treat other nations, alienating them or making allies can determine the outcome of wars yeah, right. <laughs> that we go to. Um, all those things are important. And we as Christians need to tr- do our best in the light of Scripture to think God's thoughts after him. But none of those issues are the most important. And that's where the front door comes in. When I'm weighing candidates that are options, for a candidate to be able to have the right to go into those rooms, to rearrange the furniture, decorate the walls, do what they're going to do in their particular administration, do all candidates have a right to those rooms or do only some? Well, in order to get into a house and rearrange the rooms, you need to go through the front door. And the front door is what I'm going to call um, the Bible's most foundational call of government. What is the thing that God has called an established government for, right? Because this is his idea. Mm-hmm. And he, he, when people govern poorly in Scripture, he actually calls them out on it. Mm-hmm. Two passages in particular form the front door to understand what is the minimum qualification for someone to have the right to the rest of the rooms. Um, The first passage is going to be Romans 13. Um, And that's where Paul really gets into calling calling us as Christians to submit to the government, to honor governing authorities. Um, And he, he very clearly lays out what God established government for. And so verses one through four here says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Actually, would you also go to Psalm 82? Because I'm asking you to read that in just a moment. But just a couple observations here from Romans 13. We see that our governing leaders, whether the president or the sheriff, um, all of them, are under the authority of God, instituted by God for a purpose. That is to be able to accurately understand what is good and what is evil, and to to call good good and evil evil, 
so they can't get those things mixed up. (laughs) And then they have to use their power, which is the sword, to protect the good so that it can flourish and to restrain and punish the evil so that it will not flourish. Well, in the Old Testament, we have prophets like Isaiah saying, you call evil good and good evil. Woe to you for that. So governing leaders have to know what is good and what is evil, be committed to protecting the good uh, and punishing the evil. That's a front door issue. If you can't get those things straight, you have no right to anything else in the room. Exactly. Psalm 82, God's taking to task governmental leaders whom he calls here God's lowercase g. If you just read that short psalm for us, that'd be helpful. Yeah. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Thank you. You know, so we have there a God who's going to, who is sovereign over all the nations, and he's calling these um, earthly leaders whom he's appointed to task because they were perverting justice. Mm -hmm. They were not protecting the innocent, the weak, the fatherless, the needy. These are justice issues, and justice is a a robust conversation right now for good reason, and it applies to a lot of different groups of people. But what we can say from these two passages is that for any candidate, no matter what position they're running for, if they can't get through the front door of approving what is good, as God defines good, opposing what is evil, as God defines evil, being committed to justice for all from womb to tomb, and protecting the innocent, the weak, and the needy, they are categorically unqualified. Mm. And we as Christians who are called to steward our vote for the glory of God, we do not have the right to vote for that kind of a person who doesn't get that right. And so that's what I mean when I talk about front door politics or front door voting, is that we we have a moral, biblical obligation to, to reject any candidate who doesn't who confuses what is good and what is evil. And in this particular context, Jeremy, right now, it's a little bit easier for us, not because God is a Republican, but because one of the two major parties is has made a platform of calling good evil and evil good. Mm-hmm. And to expanding the so-called rights of women to murder their children yeah. in the womb. That's a big problem. And... If we understand what God's called us to and what kind of government he's called us to enact through our votes, the choice narrows down a bit. We don't have to vote for a Republican, yeah. but we can't vote for a, par- for a candidate from a party who's committed to evil. Yeah. It's just, it's that plain. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we, how do we love people? Who may, who may uh, differ from us in, in political views? Um, you know, if you vote one way, another person votes another way. How how do you love that person the way that Christ would love that person? 
even if they have differing views. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, boy, <laughs> it depends on who the person is, right? Um, for all people, no matter who they are, um, we need to see the image of God in that person and treat them with dignity and respect, with patience and kindness. We don't have the right to attack anybody. Mm-hmm. We just don't. No matter. So, yeah. I, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm asking this question because over over the last eight months, particularly, yeah, there has been such a division, mm-hmm. and we've and we've kind of gone off into our our political realms. Ooh, yeah. I'm liberal. I'm conservative. Yada yada yada. Mm-hmm. How how do Christians? Yeah. Act. <laughs> how do they act towards somebody who has a differing view? Um, because it seems like we've just been so divided. Yeah. Um, even in Christianity. Oh yeah, for sure. And so if we're if the person is someone who's radically different politically mm-hmm. and they're a non-believer, mm-hmm. that's I mean that's going to impact how we are. So whether Christian or non-Christian, we want to listen well. We want to actually make sure we understand the person we disagree with. Yeah. Why do we disagree? Where are they coming from? Until we can articulate the reasons for their position, we haven't listened well enough. Hmm. You know, if we can't articulate where they're coming from in a way that they would be satisfied with, we haven't listened well enough. Yeah. And we should probably close our mouth before we continue that conversation. We want to act instead of react, okay? And we want to act like Christ. Um, if they are unbelievers, then we need to keep their need of salvation front and center because politics is a worldview reality. Mm-hmm. Our politics as Christians ought to arise from open Bibles, not in spite of our Bibles. And because of that, I realize that my unbelieving political opponent believes what they do about politics because of how they see the world and reality, and it's not coming from their obedience to Jesus. I don't want to so much gain a political friend in them but not a brother in Christ. Mm. I want them to be saved. So I'm not going to go certain places with an unbeliever and isolate them because of politics, which is so far incomparably inferior to their need of Christ. So I always want to keep the gospel central and make sure there's no gospel bridges that are burned, even in a conversation with someone I disagree with. Now, if we move within the church and we have a brother or sister in Christ who is going to be um, going down a political road that that biblically it seems they they cannot morally do i want to have a conversation in terms of matthew 18 with that person going to them showing them the very serious nature of what they're about Uh with an open bible pleading with them to see biblical reason and to follow god's viewpoint on these things and yeah it's messy there's a lot of complex issues and again no political party or candidate is ever going to get it right. Yeah. We're not bringing in the kingdom on the ballot. Yeah. However, there are certain places that we can't go. Um, and I want to talk about that with with a brother or sister so that they will honor Christ. Mm-hmm. Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that would include voting, do it all for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and make sure that as you go to that person, make sure you have understood where you are and that you actually are seeing things biblically. There's a lot of people, even within the church, their political viewpoints are influenced more by um, Rush Limbaugh than by Paul or Peter. Right. That's a problem. Right. Turn off the radio, open the Bible, make sure that you know why you believe what you believe and how it leads to the conclusion you have before you go to somebody else who actually might not be in sin, but just differs from you. Right. 
So we need to make sure that it really is sin on the table, not just a difference of legitimate opinion. Yeah. You know, uh, Samuel say, he's, and this is the last thing I'll say, is um, he's a, an immigrant from Ghana. He lives in Canada, does a lot of work um, with like the statement on social justice. He was an original signatory of that. Um, does a lot of writing on his blog, helping Christians think biblically through ethical, cultural issues. And he does it from a pretty solid perspective. Regarding this, the things that we're talking about, he says, we Christians, he actually says, we have the freedom not to vote for anyone, Hmm. right? No one's forcing us to do that. But we do not have freedom to vote for just anyone. We Christians have the freedom not to vote for pro-life politicians like Donald Trump. So no one's, this isn't about Trump in one way or another. This is not a political endorsement for a candidate. You know, we have the freedom not to vote for pro-life candidates, but we do not have freedom to vote for pro-abortion politicians like Joe Biden. Hmm. Otherwise, we might as well drive pregnant women to Planned Parenthood. Hmm. And he says that because he he realizes our votes actualize real events. And as Christians, we need to be very cautious about what we're bringing into reality and to make sure we're following Christ. And those are the conversations we want to have with people who disagree Mm -hmm. to show them the implications of their worldview and how it comes out even here. Doing it in a way that doesn't make an enemy, but that wins a brother and that keeps Christ and his glory central in all of it, because that's what we're for. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's great. We can't let our politics drive our Christianity. <laughs> we have to have Christianity drive our politics. Amen. That's, That's it. That. It's a theological reality. Yeah. Politics is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rick, thank you for helping us think through uh, the elections that are coming up and, and thinking about government in general. That was really helpful. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming up with this topic. Yeah, for anybody who's disgruntled at anything that was said, remember uh, Jeremy is the host. <laughs> And this was his idea. So. <laughs> I guess that's... I love you, brother. I guess that's true. <laughs> well, church, we love you. Uh, we look forward to being with you on Sunday, masks and all. And Not at mass. Masks. Masks. No. <laughs> Which and is not a political statement. <laughs> and next week on The Voice of the Valley. Have a great day.